Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the latest on Russia's invasion of Ukraine with Inna Sovson, an opposition MP in the Ukrainian parliament. Inna was previously a Deputy Minister for Education and Science and is now Deputy Leader of the Middle of the Road Holos or Voice Party. She's spoken to us before on the podcast, so before getting down to the war and the politics, I asked where she is now. Right now, as we are recording this, I'm at my home in Kiev. Uh, I have not always been living here for the duration of this full-scale invasion, because for the first month, I think, I was staying with uh, some friends uh, who live in the south of the city, because my home is on the north, and with the Russians coming from the north, it didn't feel like the best place to be staying in. And uh, uh, so so I was staying with uh, some friends. and then I have a son. Uh, he got uh, relocated by his dad, my ex-husband, to the Western Ukraine in the very first hours of the war. Uh, so the first month I was not able to see him. But then I started going back and forth to the Western Ukraine to actually see my son. And uh, uh, well, I have a boyfriend who is uh, in the army. And uh, I think I saw him uh, three times since the beginning of this uh, full scale invasion. Yes. And how is daily life in Kiev now? Well, I would say that right now it feels like it's getting back to normal uh, to an extent possible, because uh, truth be told, an hour before we started this recording, uh, some news came saying that Kremlin is now thinking uh, about a new attack in, on Kiev, which is, of course, extremely disturbing, because if you go to the streets right now, you would feel that it's almost like before. I mean, there are still not as many people in the city as before, uh, but, but like coffee shops are opening up, uh, uh, I don't know, beauty salons are opening up um, and all of that, uh, things which uh, we have not seen for for the first two months, definitely. So it does feel like getting back to normal, uh, but still we are getting air raid alerts from time to time. No major hits in the past couple of weeks in Kiev, but we always feel that this is this is a risk. And uh, uh, yeah, of course there are some problems with some types of uh, um, of uh, goods to buy in the in the supermarkets. Like the the panic of the last week was uh, salt which sounds minor, but can you imagine living without salt? That would be, you know, not a very pleasant experience. And and our major, uh, well, basically monopolistic produ- producer of salt was uh, in the eastern Ukraine, and the Russians have bombed the, the, the production. And uh, suddenly there was no salt left in the, in the supermarkets. That caused a huge panic. The last couple of days, everybody were talking about, like, where shall we get salt? And again, salt is not a unique produce. You can buy it from other markets. But with uh, the price for salt growing like, like five times, it's, of course, you know, very sensitive. So I would say that we can still feel the war. Uh, not as a military action, not directly here in Kiev. But then, of course, we always remember about what is happening on the eastern and the south of Ukraine, and that is just um, yeah, terrifying. Well, let's talk a little bit about that now, because it's been reported in the UK that Russia has taken control of the city of Liman in the eastern Donetsk region. Um, yes, uh, the news from that region right now are a bit... Uh, let's put it, let's say, inconclusive. So it's a bit difficult to assess exactly what is happening because we are hearing contradictory news from different sources. 
And I think, uh, truth be told, that the situation is just changing like by hour. So it's difficult to establish, you know, this has happened today because in an hour from, from this statement, things can change. Uh, so, so we are hearing different news from, from that specific uh, uh, piece of land. Uh, but what we know for sure is that the situation is very complicated there for the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, the Russians are indeed trying to, um, to uh, encircle them uh, in Severodonetsk. Uh, and they're pro progressing uh, rather rapidly, something that they have not been able to do before. But right now over there, they're actually making progress inside the, the, the country. And also uh, they're getting successful in terms of uh, getting uh, around the city of Severodonetsk, where, and it's important to remember again, uh, the major forces of the Ukrainian army have been stationed from the very beginning, uh, the best troops that we had. So on the one hand, uh, it gives us hope they would be able to fight back. But on the other hand, uh, you know, you can fight back if you have the right weapons. And that is the major question right now, whether we would be able to supply them with weapons they need to fight against Russian artillery. Yes. And I appreciate these things can vary from hour to hour and day to day. And I'm sure you appreciate that the Ukrainian defense the defense of Ukraine by its own people has the support, I would say, of the vast majority of people in the United Kingdom. But Boris Johnson did sound a very cautionary note. He said that Russian forces are continuing to chew through ground. And he has said that President Putin's forces are making slow but real progress. Is, do you think that's a fair summary of where we're at? Uh, yes, unfortunately. Again, a larger picture, we have to remember that we kicked them out from north of Ukraine, around Kiev and Chernihiv. We kicked them out from around Kharkiv. So, so it's not like we haven't had our successes. But truth be told, and we have to recognize the fact, is over there in Donetsk and Luhansk regions, they are making progress. And that is the fact. And, and the question, major question right now is uh, how far they will go. And that is something that we are all trying to follow as closely as possible, but it's very difficult to follow exactly because the news are so, you know, um, so um, difficult to assess, let's put it this way. Yeah. And of course, Ukraine has had significant amounts of military aid from NATO countries from the West, both financial and in terms of military hardware. Is that making a difference on the ground to the Ukrainian army? Uh, to an extent, uh, it is, uh, but uh, there, there are several issues we need to keep in mind. First of all is the type of weapons that is being provided, because, uh, you know, uh, it's not only about the sum of money that is allocated to buy weapons for Ukraine, it's the types of weapons that are pro being provided. And, you know, you can spend a billion on given rifles, but rifles won't, won't do much if you're fighting against artillery. So what we need is specific types of weapons, which need to be artillery, um, anti-ship uh, uh, weapons, uh, aircraft, air defense systems. Those are the, the, the four major things that we need to win in this war. And that had uh, been difficult to, to get, truth be told. Some countries did provide us with that, but aircrafts are still an issue. Uh, and uh, major heavy weaponry artillery is an issue. There is this concern that Ukraine will use NATO-provided artillery to attack Russia. 
which is ridiculous. We are in a defensive war. All we are doing is defending ourselves. And we can't do that. We can't fight with rifle against artillery. That, that's pretty obvious to anyone. You know, you don't have to be a military specialist to understand that. Uh, but indeed, there had been discussions and we did see some statements by some Western politicians, uh, particularly from Germany, for instance, that providing heavy weaponry to Ukraine can provoke Putin. That That's... That's an unfortunate argument, like provoke him to do what? To attack another country, you know, to kill civilians. What, you know, what are we scared of as of yet? But unfortunately, we're still getting those messages, particularly from Germany, which is unfortunate. Um, but uh, so, so, so overall, the, the, the issue number one is the type of weapons that is being provided. Issue number two is the pace. We need it as soon as possible. And that, of course, is also an issue because it took quite some time for the Western allies to understand that they will actually be providing support to Ukraine. Uh, if we got that, those decisions like the first month of the war, uh, we would have been in a very different situation. But right now, the issue is with the pace. And of course, the third minor but still important issue is the logistics. Because in order to, you know, to supply these weapons, particularly now to the troops that are very close in a very close contact with the Russians right now, that is a, a challenge itself. So I would say that those three three issues need to be kept in mind. Yeah, and you mentioned Germany's kind of caution over appearing to provoke Russia. Do you think that's also a factor for the United States and for the United Kingdom? Is that why Ukraine hasn't got quite enough of the right kind of hardware to tackle Russia? Um, no, I would say the German situation is rather specific. Uh, I would say the UK has been a, a very big friend to Ukraine in terms of particularly rallying political support all over the world for, for Ukraine. Uh, of course, if you compare the numbers, of course, the United States have allocated more money. But in terms of rallying support, Boris Johnson has actually done a great job uh, and we are truly supportive of, of and grateful for what he did because uh, he was speaking very openly and his whole government was speaking very openly that Ukraine is under attack, which was unjustified and, and the world needs to be providing support to Ukraine. And, and uh, um, I want to compliment here uh, Liz Truss, truly a fan. I think that she's doing a great job in terms of speaking openly about uh, issues which others might, you know, keep in their mind, but be afraid to speak up. Uh, we truly appreciate uh, the UK providing the support that uh, uh, can be, uh, that, that is very much needed. And then the US, of course, did allocate quite significant sums of money with the land lease deal and, and, and other types of support. So no, I would say that we cannot compare the situation of Germany and the US and the UK. Germany has its specifics uh, uh, for very different reasons. Uh, uh, I've, I've actually been to Berlin uh, about a month ago, and I think there are several issues at play with Germany. Is uh, number one uh, very close connections between uh, many German politicians and Russia. Some of those are of corrupt nature. Some of those are of just historical, personal nature. But but there are, there have been historical contacts between the two countries. Uh, second issue is uh, uh, the German society to a big extent. Uh, feels, and, and that's something that has been told to me by, by, by experts inside Germany, is there is this feeling of, of guilt towards Russians because of the World War II. And, and, uh, and, and that is part of the you know, uh, unspoken uh, argument that is being used. Uh, I think that guilt is largely misplaced because if you look at the numbers, in World War II, Russians actually, uh, sorry, Germans actually killed more Ukrainians than Russians 
And that is, you know, getting back into those historical narratives turns out to be important in case of Germany. So, so I th there are many reasons for that, but um, yeah, I wouldn't compare the, the three countries in that sense. Billionaire financier George Soros sounded a cautionary note at Davos, the meeting of world leaders and business leaders, when he said that he feared the invasion of Ukraine could be the start of World War III. Do you think he has a point? Uh, I think, yes. And I think that is something that we have actually been telling the world from the beginning. If you remember, I, I remember that very clearly the first month of the war, um, I, was, I was doing lots of interviews and, and journalists were asking me, if we intervene, if we start helping you, that will be the beginning of the World War Three. And I was saying, no, we already have the beginning of the World War Three unless help is provided to Ukraine. So, so actually providing help to Ukraine right now is not the way to start the World War Three, but to stop it at the very beginning. And I think that is, uh, it's important that Soros said that because the world needs to face the realities. And I think for a very long time, the world has been in denial of what is happening uh, and, and pretending that Putin is, is, you know, a reliable partner that people can, you know, politicians can maybe shake hands with him and so on and so forth, even after he annexed Crimea and started the war in Donbass eight years ago. I think being in denial just doesn't work. And I think the world needs to recognize it and recognize the level of threat. Uh, because by recognizing the level of threat, and only after doing that, you can actually uh, rally the support that is needed to stop this threat from happening. Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, the annexation of Crimea, the uh, occupation of Donbass uh, eight years ago, as you say, are clear signs that the West chose to ignore really for what for, for whatever reasons you know, this this was the beginning of the invasion of ukraine that that is now gathered pace and is taking place on a grander scale yeah exactly and and i've been thinking a lot about that is that uh, if sanctions against putin his family his cronies uh, the whole russian economy were introduced in 2014 we wouldn't have had those thousands of deaths of Ukrainians and destruction of the country. And, and uh, of course, we, we kind of think retrospectively that doesn't matter, right? Uh, but that is a lesson that the world needs to learn is, uh, you know, you need to, uh, to uh, be faithful with yourself and, and telling the truth. What happened in 2014 was illegal annexation of part of the country, which was committed by, by individual representing a whole state, and that needed to be, uh, there, there needed to be a proper reaction to that. But unfortunately, the reaction didn't follow. And, and uh, there is this old statement saying that, uh, um, oh, I'm trying to, to guess the English translation, the, the evil unpunished continues to grow. And I think that is what happened, like uh, not punishing Putin for Crimea, for what he has done to Georgia, for Transnistria. And that was not even Putin. That was, you know, years before that. Uh, that for him, it only meant that he can go further. You allow him to take a bite. He will come back for more. Henry Kissinger, the former U.S. Secretary of State, suggesting that Ukraine will have to accept that it must cede land in order to secure peace with Russia. What do you make of that? Well, I wish he said which part of land the US would cede if any single country would start bombing it. Um, but overall, I think um, there are several layers to that. Uh, and, and actually, well, of course, I think that is a shameful statement. Uh, of course, uh, the argument that uh, uh, ceding a piece of land would lead to peace 
is just, uh, you know, it's just wrong from the professional standpoint. Him as, 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 as you know, a researcher cannot be saying that, not even as a politician, but just, just a mere fact. Not a single case can be given where a part of land was given to, you know, taken by another country and that led to peace, a long, long lasting peace. But um, apparently there is also a somewhat a moral argument against that being made. Uh, something I learned actually after I tweeted about this on, on my Twitter account, uh, because some of the, the commentators said that, uh, well, that uh, can easily be explained by the fact that Kissinger became the member of the Russian Academy of Science in 2016. 2016, two years after annexation of Crimea, uh, which he, as a former uh, Secretary of State of the US, of course, knew was illegal, on, you know, simply illegal. But it was acceptable for him two years after that uh, to, to go to Russia and to become part of the institutions representing Russian state, uh, which I think is, is wrong again. So he did not just uh, you know, argue in favor of, of stronger sanctions. He actually basically said it's okay to deal with Russia. It's okay to be part of their of their internal institutions, like the Russian Academy of Science. Uh, so, so apparently, uh, he has had uh, uh, well uh, warm feelings towards Russia overall, uh, you know, and, and uh, uh, that partially explains his uh, his argument made in the Davos Forum. Uh, but then again, he's wrong because like, look at the at the, the, the facts. Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. Basically, the world just, you know, said like, okay, too bad, a shame, but, you know, let's keep on living like this. And then eight years after that, Russia uses Crimea as the major platform for launching a full-scale attack into Ukraine. And they will always do that. Again, you allow them to take a bite, they come back for more. Uh, the world accepted uh, basically an exception of Crimea, and they did come back for more. So if we allow for them to cede any part of, of our territory, they will use our territory to prepare for yet another war in five, six, eight, ten years from now. What do you think Putin's endgame is? I don't think even he can answer this question right now. But I think um, I think I, I don't know what his plan is. But I think it's pretty obvious what the end will be for him. I don't think he would be able to survive this war uh, for, for multiple reasons. Well, starting from reports of him being extremely sick, which I believe are true, uh, but also because there is no way for him to win this war and there is no way for him to make countries stronger because of this war. And I think at the end, this will lead to some sort of collapse of regime in Russia. I'm not saying like collapse of Russia, that, that can be one of the options, but uh, I cannot be you know, absolutely sure of that, but that is one of the options that uh, I'm sure he, he probably realizes in his delusional mind right now. Um, but I think it's pretty obvious that uh, such a war, such an unjustified war just cannot uh, lead to uh, you know, the country getting stronger. Uh, but if we try to reconstruct his thinking to an extent that is possible, I think uh, that he will not stop. He's incapable of stopping. He will go as much as he will be allowed to go into Ukraine's territory. And the major question right now is he will be stopped. And it can be done by, by two uh, actors. First of all, it's the Ukrainian army provided with the weapons from the West, but then also internally, because I think there is a growing dissatisfaction with the war uh, inside Putin's circles. 
and that can be you know that can have a potential of, of changing the situation um so uh, i think uh, that's important to continue providing weapons to the ukrainian army and uh, the more ukrainian army fights back the more dissatisfaction there is among russian elites and the more they can try to change the status quo internally now it's reported on the bbc today that putin had promised that young men who were conscripted into the russian army had been conscripted with the promise that they would not be fighting in Ukraine. And of course, yeah, but I, I don't that's, think that's not true, you know. Of course, that's not true. And he actually has already had this public discussion because uh, the first couple of weeks of war, uh, when uh, families back in Russia started to learn that their uh, sons who were conscripted uh, have been killed, uh, they started. Uh, complaining about that. And then Putin went to the media and he made a statement like, I didn't know that people who have been conscripted into the army were sent. That was the fault of the generals. I'll deal with that. You know, so so he already had this internal discussion. Uh, of course, they will still have to, to use the conscripted soldiers because they don't have enough of um, those who will sign up voluntarily. Uh, so so uh, I think that is one of the one of the sources of dissatisfaction inside Russian society. But important to understand is that what the society in general thinks doesn't really matter. What matters is what the Russian elite thinks, because unlike Ukraine, unlike the UK, unlike other democratic states. For Russia, it doesn't really matter, unfortunately. Uh, but what matters is what uh, the Russian elites are thinking. Ina, it's been great to chat with you and get your insight into what's going on with Ukraine. I just want to finish by reminding you that there is so much solidarity and so much love flowing in the direction of Ukraine from the West at the moment. And the opinion that we have in the UK of Ukrainians, you know, a country that many of us were not really that aware of before has absolutely gone through the roof in, in recent months. So we admire you, we salute you, and we really do wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, not the way how we wanted to become more acquainted, uh, trust me, but uh, we feel the solidarity, we uh, appreciate it, and we hope that uh, with this solidarity, we shall be able to prevail against uh, this uh, this aggressor for the whole world. Thank you so much. Inna Sovson, and my name's Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. If you want to support our work and back free and fearless journalism, then please think about taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. It's our brilliant monthly newspaper. You get all the details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. A subscription helps to support this podcast, Byline Radio, and Byline TV as well. So do check it out. Bylinetimes.com is where you'll find details of how to subscribe. Thanks for listening. See you next time.